our pop-up digital cafe with uh, Dr. Desio Zurich. He's an MD PhD and he is at, uh, located at the ULB in Brussels. And he has a long career in the study of type one diabetes and its etiology. And I'm sure many of you know him and his work. It's, it's an excellent set of papers that he even recently, he's been just putting out paper after paper. And so we're really uh, looking forward to hearing what his uh, newest uh, impressions are in the space and the dialogue between the beta cell and the immune system. And also, you know, kind of really driving conversation. This is really meant to be a digital cafe where people really engage with each other and discuss some of the outstanding questions and kind of dig into the, the data and uh, each other's um, impressions. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you again. I was in another uh, sugar meeting one month ago together with, uh, with Jennifer. And I guess this has been recorded. So I decided to take a slightly different approach today and discuss with you something that is really puzzling me, which is why beta cells are killed in type 1 diabetes while the alpha cells survive. And so this is just a background. Probably some of you have seen these figures in some of our reviews. So what we have been proposing is that the beginning and the evolution of type 1 diabetes mellitus probably take place in the context of a dialogue between the beta cells and the immune system. And this dialogue is fostered by the genetical background of the individual. So I think there is a, some, a polemic what comes first, beta cells or immune system. I think this is a wrongly posed question. Probably in some patients is mostly a problem of the immune systems. In others, there may be something at the beta cell level that contributes to trigger the immune response. But in the end, you'll need to have this dialogue between the invading immune cells and the pancreatic beta cells. And this dialogue eventually will lead to presentation of modified antigen, cell death. This antigens uh, will be captured by dendritic cells and B cells, presented to CD4 cells, which will keep this process running. Beta cells will also express antigens in the context of MHC class 1, which render them susceptible to CD8 positive T cells killing. One thing to keep in mind is that not all inflammation-induced signals are really deleterious. So for instance, beta cells will express pdl one or HLAE, which will inhibit natural killer and CD8 cells. However, these mechanisms of defense in many patients are not sufficient and they eventually develop disease. One thing that I have been puzzled is that when you look at the anatomy of the human islets of Lagerhans, you all, all know that in human uh, islets are a little bit different from rats and, and mice, the alpha and beta cells are closely in close contact. So you don't have this mantle of alpha cells as you have in mice, for instance. However, when we look at what happened in type one, so this is a paper that we published a couple of years ago, together with Noel Morgan and Sarah Richardson. And the goal of the paper was to look at PDL1, this protective protein expression. However, this figure also shows something interesting. 
So this is the, the pancreas of a patient, not a patient, well, it's somebody who died, but a normal glycemic individual. And you see that there is a lot of glucagon-positive cells and a lot of insulin-positive cells, and they are closely located. And in this case, there is no PDL1 expression. This is an islet of a patient with type 1 who still have beta cells, and you see a lot of PDL1. But let's look now at an islet of a patient with very long duration of type 1. So in this case, the beta cells are gone. You don't see insulin positive cells. PDL1 is gone, but the alpha cells remain. So this is a basic finding that the immune system is killing the beta cells, but is not killing the alpha cells. So this is well established. We now know, for instance, there has been some recent papers by Marcella Brissova and colleagues that these alpha cells are not functionally in a normal way. So in vitro, for instance, alpha cells from type 1 diabetic patients, they do not release uh, glucagon in a normal way. And also, they have a defective expression of several genes. However, they are not being killed, which is a basic difference from the beta cells. So we have been interested in this uh, alpha beta cell story. I have been puzzling for many years why beta cells are killed and not alpha cells. And in recent years, we have been studying one cytokine interferon alpha. And this is a pro-inflammatory cytokine that is present in islets of patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus. And it has been implicated in the early stages of type 1. And interferon alpha is a key player in the dialogue between beta cells and the immune system by inducing inflammation, HLA class 1, and endoplasmic reticulum stress. And these are three histological hallmarks of pancreatic beta cells in type 1. And this is the signal transduction of type 1 interferons. And one thing that is interesting also is that we and other people, mostly flaming posts, have shown that many of the candidate genes acting at the beta cell level, I mean, candidate genes for type 1 diabetes mellitus, they regulate either recognition of virus like MDA5, they also contribute to the signaling of type 1 interferon. So, for instance, TIC2 is a candidate gene for type 1, where a decrease in TIC2 activity is protective against disease. So there are several other genes involved in type 1 interferon signal. So we have been wondering, because when you think about type 1, let's say the autoimmunity, in many patients, it starts very early, perhaps even intrauterine. And when we study the crosstalk immune system, beta cells, we usually look at the adult human islets of Langerhans. So I started wondering if we shouldn't look at immature uh, human beta cells or human islet cells in the context of exposure to a very early cytokine, for instance, interferon alpha, which may be present in the early stages of type 1. So how, how can we get immature beta cells? One strategy that we are developing is to use inducible pluripotent cells. So these inducible pluripotent cells can be coached to differentiate into islet-like cells. And in our lab, we are doing this. So at stage seven of differentiation, 
you get around 50% beta cells, around 10% alpha cells, and 10 to 15% uh, polyhormonal cells. When you expose the cells to high glucose, you see that they respond, but this is an immature response. So if this would be a mature adult human uh, islet, you would expect at least a five-fold increase. And with this uh, IPS-derived islet-like cells, you just get a two-fold. They can respond when you expose them to high glucose plus foscoli. So we decided to expose them to interferon alpha for uh, 20, 24 hours. You have a mild increase in cell death. You have an upregulation of uh, HLA class one, ABC. Uh, you have an upregulation to the chemokine CXL10 and PDL1. So this is all similar to adult human islet. So what we did next was in parallel bulk RNA sequencing and single cell RNA sequencing on these IPS-derived islet cells exposed to interferon alpha. And from now on, all that I am showing, it's mostly a paper that we are in the process of meeting. So when we look at the bulk RNA sequencing, we get a response that is very similar to human islets of Langerhans. So you get uh, interference signaling, you get uh, antiviral mechanism by stimulated, by interference stimulated genes, you get antigen uh, presentation, and for instance, antiviral responses. When you look at the bound-regulated genes, you get, for instance, inhibition of respiratory electron transport and some other mitochondrial function. But the most interesting part is when we start to compare the individual cells. So let's focus on the beta cells here and the alpha cells here. So you see that the antigen processing, there are, so the intensity of the color, it's a log fold change in terms of significance and gives an idea of the number of genes in this pattern. So there is a mild increase in antigen processing cross-presentation in beta cells compared to alpha cells. On the other hand, the antiviral mechanism seems to be higher in all the other islet cells as compared to the beta cells. So we went a little bit further. So we did another way to show this uh, data where we are showing these dots. So the size of the dot indicate the number of genes expressing their gene. So this big dot here indicates that more than 75% of the cell study express, for instance, TAT1. And the intensity of the color gives an idea of the level of expression. So if we, st we started looking at four cell groups, one where the alpha cells under control condition, and then alpha cells after a 24 hours exposure interferon alpha, then beta cells control, and uh, beta cells exposure to interferon. So when you look at PDX1, it's a marker of beta cells, is much higher in beta than in alpha. On the other hand, uh, ARX, which is a classical alpha cell transcription factor, is much higher in alpha than in beta cells. So far, so good. So we start, the first thing that we looked at were at markers of ER stress. And then we found some interesting things. 
So first, this is a BCL XL, which is an anti-apoptotic gene that may be downstream of the stress. It's much higher in alpha cells than in beta cells. On the other hand, if you look at SHOP, which is a pro-apoptotic transcription factor induced during the stress, much higher in beta cells than in alpha cells. And then you look here, for instance, at BEEP, which is a protective chaperone in the context of your stress. Again, it's much higher in alpha cells than in beta cells. And alpha cells exposed to your stress upregulate BEEP, while beta cells downregulate. So it's a paradoxical response. However, induction of HLA A, B, and C was similar. If anything, was even a little bit higher in alpha than in beta cells. However, HLA-E, which is a protective form of uh, HLA, was higher in alpha than in beta cells. And the, the other thing that we noticed that, for instance, MDA5, the second gene for type 1, MDA5 is a viral receptor, is much higher in alpha cells exposed to interferon alpha than in beta cells. So let's start to look at this in more detail. So uh, last year, together with Roberto Maloney, we published a some kind of commentary in Diabetologia where we were trying to identify weakness in the biology of the beta cells that may promote their autoimmune vulnerability. So let's compare beta and alpha cells. So the first, if we go from weakness three, beta cells secrete their products into the bloodstream. Alpha cells also do it. So no uh, difference here. Both, uh, there is a, a second weakness is that islets are highly vascularized, which may allow access of immune cells. This is valid for beta cells, is valid for alpha cells. The third one is that making insulin and other granule proteins, it may promote beta cell ER stress, particularly ER stress. I first thought that this would be similar in alpha and beta cells because alpha cells are also producing glucagon, uh, releasing granules. However, thinking further, uh, during the early stages of type 1, glycemia is going up, beta cells will be working double shifts, while alpha cells will be suppressed by the hyperglycemia. So, Beta cells are probably working harder than alpha cells. Uh, if we look at HHLA expression and also several other genes related to HHLA loading, they are, they are similar between beta and alpha cells. So the other possibility is that the signals that lead to uh, beta cell deaths and then will allow antigens to be present are more marked in beta cells than in alpha cells. In other words, we started to wonder whether alpha cells would be uh, more able to endure, for instance, a viral infection or uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress. So I went back to some studies that we did a few years ago, and these are red uh, data, but I think there are some confirmation in human beta cells. So we can fact purify red beta uh, alpha cells, and we infected them with cv Coxsackie virus 5, 
which is one of the candidate diabetogenic virus. And here we measured VP1, which is a protein in the virus capsule. So you see that here, the infection in the beta cells progress, and by 24 hours, there is a massive infection, and the beta cells are dropping dead. However, if you look at the alpha cells in red, let's look at this insert here. You see that the virus enter, and then the alpha cell are able to kick the virus out. So the alpha cell do not allow the virus to proliferate. And one of the reasons for this is that alpha cells have a higher basal and inducible expression of STAT1 and of several antiviral proteins like MX1. And indeed, we knocked down STAT1, and this rendered the, the alpha cells susceptible to the viral infection. We can discuss this further. This is not this phenomenon of intra-tissue difference in cells response to virus is not unique for the uh, islets of Langerhans. This has been seen in brain, for instance. The other thing that we have observed in our single cell RNA set was that uh, alpha cells express much higher HLA than beta cells. And this together with Sarah Richardson and Noel Morgan, we confirmed it. So in a non-diabetic individual, there is no HLA class one expression. In type one patients who still have beta cells, there is a massive increase in HLA-E expression, which is more prevalent in alpha than in beta cells. So this is another mechanism by which alpha cells may deal at that stage with the autoimmune assault. And then let's go back to ER stress. So here we have data from a model of type two, and this may be relevant because in type two, there is also endoplasmic reticular stress. So what we did, this was a study that we also did a few years ago, together with Piero Marchetti and Miriam Knopf and Laura Marroc, who was the first author of this in the previous paper. So basically we did electromicroscopy of the islands from seven controls and seven individuals affected by type one. And uh, you can see, for instance, in the beta cell, you have uh, a apoptosis, as shown by this condensed nucleus, very little in the alpha cells. So how can we measure uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress by electron microscopy? Well, when the ER is stressed chronically, there is an increase in the ER area. So if we look, for instance, in the beta cells, the area of the endoplasmic reticulum went up from 0.9 to 3. However, the alpha cells, it also went up from 1.4 to 3.9. But the beta cells are dying, while the alpha cells are still smiling. So it seems that at least in the context of type 2, the alpha cells can endure endoplasmic reticulum stress in a much better way. So we went to test this in vitro. So we got the uh, islets of Langerhans from three controls. And this we did together with, again, Miriam Knopp and Piero Marchetti and Laura Marroc. And we exposed this human islets to palmitate. And you see that palmitate is a strong ER stressor. So the area of the endoplasmic reticulum increased in the beta cells, 0.3 to nearly 4. And it also increased in the alpha cells, 1.3 to 4. However, beta cells die, 
4% are dropping dead, alpha cells are not dying. Why this? One of the reasons is that alpha cells, and again confirming what we saw in the single cell RNA sac, have a much higher expression of BCL2 and particularly BCL-XL. And BCL-XL is a critical anti-apoptotic gene in beta cells, and now we're learning in alpha cells. And indeed, we knock it down uh, BCL-XL. So you see, we have a very nice inhibition. This uh, uh, is in red alpha cells. This remains to be proven in human. Anyway, in the red, when you knock down BCL-XL, you sensitize the alpha cells to palmitate. So you uh, abrogate this protection that alpha cells have against the stress. So which are the preliminary conclusions? And I would emphasize very much this preliminary. First, pancreatic beta cells, but not alpha cells, are destroyed in type 1. This is a well-established phenomenon. Then what we are finding is the exposure of IPS-derived islet cells to interferon alpha, which is an early cytokine type 1, induces both similar, for instance, AGLA-related genes and different, for instance, BCLXL, ER stress-related genes, some innate immune response genes when comparing beta-like and alpha-like cells. So, it seems that the capacity for antigen presentation is similar between beta cells and alpha cells, but either alpha cells are somehow less antigenic than beta cells. And indeed, there was a very nice paper in PNIS last month for uh, the Denver group, where they showed looking at CD8 T cells in the islets that they are recognizing insulin, but they are not recognizing glucagon. So one possibility is that for some reasons that still is not clear, glucagon is less antigenic than insulin. The other possibility, which I tend to favor now, but there is a lot of interrogation marks, is that alpha cells have a better capacity to endure viral infections and ER stress. And this allowed them to survive better in the early stages of the uh, disease, which would be both viral and immune-induced stress. If they are surviving better and they are, let's say, dying less, at least in theory, there will be less antigens to be presented, which may be one of the reasons why autoimmunity develops against beta cells, but not alpha cells. But I mean, then that, as I told you, there is a lot of interrogation marks, and I would be very happy if you could help me in my perplexity here, why beta cells are killer while alpha cells survive. That was a fantastic presentation. And yeah, let's open it up to people's um, impressions and perhaps their own hypotheses, or they could share some data they are willing to share that, that might uh, support one versus the other. Yeah, we have a publicist here, a paper in Diabetologia, where we have found some action on interferon alpha. It is so, which we earlier published, that 2 5 synthetase is six times more active in beta cells than in alpha cells. And it is a cascade from interferon alpha to 2 5 synthetase and further on to 
RNAs, which is then more prominent in beta cells and in alpha cells. And you can look it up in that paper uh, from Diabetologia. I'm last author, Peterson. I have so, seen this paper, but do you think that this would be a protective response or that this would be deleterious? Because one of the things, when I think about beta cells and virus, I always read about BEPs. And there was a very nice uh, paper in Cell where they were describing how bats survive. So for instance, bats can get rabies and they don't die. Well, if we get rabies, we are yeah. in a bad yeah. So basically what bats do is that they live with the virus. So they don't over respond. And by not over respond, they survive. And for instance, if you think about beta cells and as neurons, they cannot get rid of the virus by dying. Yes. For instance, if you get a enteritis, a viral enteritis, you just lose a lot of cells and you get rid of the virus. If the beta cells or neurons do this, that's bad news because they cannot proliferate. So the question is whether this phenomenon that you observe, which is indeed very relevant, will make the cells better able to survive the virus or will contribute for them to die? Yeah, I think it's not a toxic virus, these viruses we are using. These viruses are doing something, but then the beta cells is in such a state with more RNAs, it uh, will destroy itself from within and then the immune system could come with uh, dendritic cells and T cells later on and so on. So I think uh, it's not, I agree with you, it's not a toxic virus. That's only in Japan and South Korea we are seeing that. But it's virus that destroy or could hurt the beta cells from within. That would I, I That's an interesting point. Just one thing that I forgot, I just see Florian. Florian Simczak is the bioinformatician who did the analysis of all this nice single cell RNA sec that we have seen. Since it is an informal chat, I didn't put the name of everybody involved. I apologize for it. Nayara, do you have a question? Yeah, uh, hi, Desu. Uh, thanks for the talk. Actually, I want to change a little bit, let's say, the gears. And I'm always wondering why some beta cells in the type 1 diabetic patients is still alive, even after many years of having the disease. Uh, like the medalist. And like you nicely showed that uh, you find some differences between alpha and beta cells. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts, why do you think some beta cells are more resilient? And if you think there is something that is similar with the alpha cells that it can stay alive or I don't know, just in general. Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Indeed, one of the reasons why we are looking at this alpha beta cell score besides of curiosity is that if we can identify why alpha cells survive better, this can give some hints, what can we do to help the beta cells? There is no straight answer to this question. There was a very nice paper by Kevin Harold and colleagues, but this was in odd mice, where they did single cell RNA sec of uh, islets, let's say, as the disease progress. And they have seen some beta cells that survive longer. And one of the characteristics of these beta cells was expression of PDL1. So it may be that the overexpression of PDL1 may be one of the mechanisms. 
And indeed, we did a study in 2018 against together Sarah Richardson and uh, Laura Morgan, where we see that islets of patients with type 1 where there will still be the cells express a lot of PDL1, but this is heterogeneous. Uh, and we know also that some individuals, as let's say patients with cancer that receive PD1, PDL1 therapy, 1 to 2% of this patient may develop type 1. So we can speculate that PDL1 expression is helping the beta cells to hang on. So this could be one mechanism. The other mechanism would be loss of differentiated phenotype leading to less antigenic expression. So this is one possibility. I see one question by Georgia. Do alpha cells also express PDL1? That's interesting. They do, but less than beta cells. So with PDL1, is the opposite as with HLAE. So HLA-E is more intense in alpha than in beta. PDL1 is more expressed in this. I'm speaking about pancreas of type 1 diabetic patients. PDL1 is more expressed in beta than in alpha cells, but some alpha cells express it. But I don't think that PDL1 would be a reason why alpha cells is more are more resident since beta cells are also doing it. So I was wondering whether you see differentially expressed in type 1D versus non-type 1D islets, whether upon, for example, interferon alpha exposure, they also upregulate PDL1. When we have done comparisons, for instance, of global gene expression in islets from type 2 diabetic patients and type 1. And they, they type, the type 2 don't over-express uh, PDL1. However, if we expose them in, in vitro to interferon alpha, I never did it, but if you expose, for instance, normal islets of Langerhans to interferon alpha, they will upregulate PDL1. So I think under the in vitro condition is a overwhelming uh, stimuli. Okay, then I have a question from Sally. I missed your comment about T-cell re reactivity to glucagon. Historically, it's poorly looked at. Indeed, but there was a paper by uh, Dr. Nakayama from Denver last month in PNAS, uh, and they looked at the T-cells infiltrating the islets in type 1 diabetic patients. And they found a very large number of cells that react actually more to pro-insulin than to insulin, but they did not find the cells that respond or react to uh, glucagon. So this was the first solid data that I have seen. And also this weekend, I was talking to Roberto Maloney, who's my immunologist consultant, and he has done some non-published data where he also compared response to insulin and to glucagon. And in type 1, it's much more important to ins uh, the response to insulin and to glucagon. So it seems to be that the T cells are not seeing the uh, alpha cells, which brings another question. Why are the alpha cells dysfunctional? Because they are dysfunctional. They are not killed, but they are not functioning in an adequate way. It could either be spillover of cytokines, for instance, to which alpha cells are sensitive, 
it could also be the release of vesicles. This is something that I was talking with Monica before between cells. This we really don't, don't know, but it's clear cut that this is the work that uh, uh, Dr. Brissov and colleagues are doing, that they show that alpha cells from patients affected by type 1 diabetes, they do not release insulin in a physiological way, and they have inhibition of several genes that are important to the alpha cell phenotype. This is a really nice talk. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Zach Freyberg. Um, you know, this brings up, so the work by Marcella Brisova, uh, Al Powers, and, the, and that group, you know, in this latest paper is very interesting. You know, it, it brings up a few things, I think, that, that might be worth considering. One is the, the third possibility, other than the release of, you know, cytokines or, you know, a materials from the, 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 the beta cells, could it also be a loss of paracrine regulation? So as you're progressively losing beta cells, you know, you're, you're also messing up paracrine regulation of alpha cell function. And then, and what, and so what's happening is, is that you're entering into this loop basically where the more you lose of the beta cells, the more abnormal or dysfunctional paracrine regulation of alpha cells are, especially because they're, you know, they're starting from a much higher baseline to begin with. Whereas like, alpha, whereas beta cells need to be depolarized to function and release, the alpha cells are starting from a constitutively active baseline because of their membrane potentials and so on. So they have to be quieted. So if you're starting from a much higher level of basal function, that becomes a lot more important. You know, the second aspect of this that I think that, that hasn't really been discussed, you know, again, I can't help but draw parallels between what's going on in type 1 diabetes and the fundamental pathophysiology, which occurs in Parkinson's disease, because you're touching on, you know, the eternal questions of what defines, you know, selective resilience or vulnerability, even within what were once considered relatively homogenous populations of cells. So for example, when you're looking at dopamine neurons, which are obviously you know, being destroyed over time through a neuroimmune process, just like in type one diabetes, it's very, very clear, right? That there are some cells that are much, much more resilient. And what the, what the Parkinson's community has found over and over again is, while we don't fully understand the determinants of selective vulnerability, the ones that are capable of surviving longer or better are ones which can optimize their metabolic profiles, i.e. through the tuning of mitochondrial function. And so in the bris of a paper, perhaps one of the more intriguing findings is this report that at least some of the, the genes that are implicated are directly associated with control over TCA, right? And again, so that now you're locking in mitochondria, at least indirectly, as a mediator of some of this difference in vulnerability. Well, you are addressing two important points. So the first one is about why alpha cells are dysfunction. And I agree that lack of uh, cell, cell communication may be an important point. 
Uh, we are doing some comparisons of alpha cell RNA sac in type one and type two. Although in type two, the beta cells are not dying, but there is less insulin and the signatures are very different. So it seems that there is something that is inherent to type one. But the other point of the susceptibility of different cells, I actually got this uh, idea of testing susceptibility of alpha and beta cells to viral infection from a paper in brain. So it was a paper published in Nature Medicine where they were studying Nile fever. It's a very nasty disease mm -hmm. that kill cortical neurons, but the cerebellar neurons survive. So what they found is that something very similar to what we found in the island. So the cerebellum has a higher baseline innate immune response and respond much better to the virus. And this is very similar to the alpha and beta cell story. And I even did, did a comparison. So which genes are higher in cerebellum compared to cortex against which genes are higher in alpha cells compared to beta? And they were extremely similar. So I think this, this is related to this intercell uh, uh, difference. I just see that there is another question by Yang Dai. Uh, I noticed two terminology difference between you and uh, uh, Zachary. So Zachary used uh, volubility and you use anti-genicity. So of alpha cell versus beta cells. Zachary was in the first part of his commentary, he was discussing function and I am discussing killing. Well, I, I do think there's important questions. Uh, the, the probably different view from immunologist versus beta cell development. For, for immunologists, they're probably more thinking about antigen, novel antigen are created or somehow tolerized in central tolerance. But for biologists, they're more thinking about at a cell level, they are more uh, uh, a way of survival resistance. So we should discuss this difference, which one is play more important role for beta cell be killed just, easier. Fair enough. I mean, so if I could just jump in for just one second, I mean, the, the, the idea of vulnerability, I mean, this is a, I'm referring to it strictly the way neurologists do in the sense that vulnerability really suggests the likelihood of being destroyed. And, and that's the mirror image of resilience, the likelihood of surviving in the midst of an ongoing degenerative process. So if you have a, a biological process where you have ongoing loss of cells, the vulner, vulnerability specifically refers to a likelihood, a percentage, that probability that that cell or that cell type is going to, to die over time. The resilience is the inverse of that, the, the probability that that cell or that cell type will survive in the midst of that ongoing process. It has nothing, in, in my mind at least, it has nothing to do with antigenicity. Antigenicity might refer to, you know, the likelihood of some kind of, you know, crosstalk or interaction with the immune system that may not be beneficial that may increase stress, but again, even if a cell is attacked, it does, doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to 
die. It may survive ongoing exposure locally to cytokines, for example, if it has certain factors which boost its resilience, its survivability. And I think that's what, what, what Dicio was, was showing earlier concerning like ER and, and survival in response to ER stress. So that, that's all. Yeah. These are good the points, just two points to Yang. First, immunologists are also biologists. Second, <laughs> I, am not, I am not a real immunologist. I am an island biologist who is trying to do crosstalk beta cells immunology. So don't, uh, don't uh, compliment me of being an immunologist because I am, I, I, I am not yet one. But the point, I think these points that you are making are very well taken, but we should not forget that type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So it reaches a moment where the immune system start to recognize the beta cells, but not the alpha cells as foreign. And when you reach this point, the beta cells are in a dire strait because you have some mechanisms, like for instance, CD8 mediated uh, beta cell death. It is a cell to cell contact involving fast light and perforin and so on. And this is very, very difficult to survive. So I think this issue of resilience, it's probably important in the early stages, which may, for instance, determine if you will move from an early inflammation and an innate immune response to a full-fledged autoimmune disease. But once the autoimmunity is there, I think uh, the situation is, is pretty bad. So I, I don't think we can completely separate resilience and autoimmunity. I guess I would ask, can you comment on whether or not, you know, in these medalists, they do have still some residual, you know, live beta cells and some, some even have some functionality, but so would, would you consider that those cells that are able to survive years of, of immune attack and autoimmunity, they might have more resilience? I mean, has, are people drilling down into what is it about those cells that stick around? makes them special? Yeah. Well, for sure they have more uh, resilience because they are still there. Uh, I have asked Susan Bonner-Whale to look at pdl one expression in these cells, mm -hmm. but I am still waiting for her feedback. So if by any chance the cells express a lot of pdl one this could be a mechanism by which they are more, they are enduring. One thing to keep in mind also is that when we are speaking about the surviving beta cells, this is very nice, but it's a very, very small fraction and they are not functional or very little function. So if you look at people with 20, 30 years of type one, many of them still have C-peptide, but I once did, I was giving a lecture on beta cell imaging. So I took the pain to calculate as percentage of normal or normal glycemic individuals. And this, this individual, they're having 0 0.1, 0 0.2 or less. So this is very, very small amounts. And it remains to be shown that they, they can be restored. So if this would be possible, this would be nice. Georgia Fusier had a question uh, whether or not anyone's tried to immunize for glucagon and test for alpha cell loss, maybe not. I really don't know. I am not aware of these studies. 
One issue with alpha cell loss was uh, Pedro Herrera did a nice study some years ago where he put the diphtheria toxin receptor in the alpha cells. So he was able to kill all alpha cells in the mouse and nothing happened. So the mouse were perfectly normal glycemic and the metabolism was normal. So at least in the mouse, they can live without uh, alpha cells, without much ADU. So I don't know if anybody did this, not mice, but the question would be what would be the phenotype? Perhaps mostly stology. Yeah. And I just wanted to sort of ask if anyone has an impression about the layering of the innervation of the islets and whether or not that you know, people have thoughts about whether this is contributing or possibly contributing to sort of, you know, we want to call vulnerability of one or the other of the cell types. That's a good question. That innervation probably plays a role. I think there are more and more that, including in other autoimmune diseases. But I really don't know if the innervation in the alpha and beta cells is different. I wonder if Zachary of Young has any idea there. So, uh, well, well I'm, I'm actually very interested in the, the innervation of, of the endocrine pancreas. And it, it seems like right now where things are at, there's very, very little consensus. Yeah. You know, and what's also very clear is that there are profound species specific differences uh, in the innervation itself. Um, work from the Caicedo group in the last two years has explored this. They had a paper that came out, I think, about a year and a half ago, where they traced the innervation in the human pancreas and they compared it to the mouse. And what they found was that it's, I believe it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's sparser, for example, uh, in the human. And that creates a justification for a lot more local, you know, transmitter biosynthesis, which makes sense. I mean, my, the work from my lab has shown, you know, that that alpha cells and beta cells freely take up L-dopa, turn it into dopamine and norepinephrine. And, and that in turn, you know, leads to local, you know, adrenergic, dopaminergic signaling in both. There's an interplay that's independent of whatever innervation is coming in from the sympathetic nervous system. My guess also, and, and this is something that I'm, I'm quite interested in, is in terms of whatever nerve endings there are, which, which enter into the endocrine pancreas. Um, do you get differential innervation uh, around alpha cells versus beta cells? I think that, and, and does that also vary, you know, in different parts of the pancreas? What is the innervation? And people treat it kind of as one unit, but, you know, how much heterogeneity is there in the head versus the body versus the tail. And the same thing is true probably in terms of just perfusion, right? What, what's the difference, in, you know, and that, you know, from the point of view of even exposure, right? To infiltrating immune cells. Like if there is in fact uh, some kind of like difference in the, the vasculature or access, right? To 
you know, to, to, to the systemic circulation. How, how heterogeneous is that? So I think that both of these are kind of like interlocking questions in a sense. Yeah, that's a very good point because indeed the destruction of the islets in type one is very heterogeneous. If you look at the pancreas, sometimes you see islets, if you didn't know that this patient has type one, it looks like a normal islet. However, they're not functioning. So I think that's an interesting point. And then there is a relevant comment by Sally. If there is a T cell response against alpha cells, the target may not be glucagon. Yes, it may well be. Uh, we are just seeing about glucagon by analogy to insulin and beta cells, but you are right. It could well be another antigen. However, the fact remains that alpha cells are not killed while beta cells are. So either they are not targeted or they are much more resistant, which remains to be defined. Z Zachary, uh, sorry, interrupt. Zachary, is GAD65 uh, expressing alpha cells? <laughs> well, you read my mind. So this is actually <laughs> yeah. something, that, this was actually a point that I wanted to, to raise, right? A, I don't know, you know, exactly. I know certainly in beta, so I, I got my start actually looking at, you know, GAD65 versus amphiphysin, you know, as, as autoantigens. The, the question, you know, in terms of what defines, you know, functional versus abnormal alpha cells in, in, in this milieu, right? I wonder, are we missing you know, de-differentiated cells. Because one of the things that, that, that your point about GAD65 gets at is, you know, you're, you're also altering local GABA, right? By affecting course, yeah. GAD. And Ga isn't GABA, and please correct me if I'm wrong, isn't GABA increasingly implicated in alpha to beta cell transdifferentiation? Yeah, okay, I was so. involved in this paper, but this has been difficult to confirm. So this is still polemic. I, I'm are, coming at this very naively, so my apologies, you know. No, no, no. I, I was a distant co-author in this cell paper. We did some work in red, alpha to beta cell. Did uh, this data, this was a paper in cell, it suggested that there was transformation of alpha to beta cells. And there is data from Pedro Herrera when he ablates beta cells, there is some conversion. But if this is true in humans, it's still an open question. Just, I see that Florian is still there. Florian, I think we can look at GAD65 expression in alpha and beta. Although GAD expression is around 10 to 20 TPM. I don't know if we're going to pick it in single cell which is much well, less sensitive than bulk RNA sac. That's true. And we were talking about this at the very beginning about the question is, you know, that in some individuals, the subset, usually the HLA-DR3, DR2, they present GAD65 as a first autoantibody. And so we were saying, you know, obviously it's an intracellular. So is it, is it just that the cell is apoptosing and it's, it's out there or it's, you know, being destroyed and it's out there or is it, is it re being released? you know, via this SVs like you talked about? Or, you know, is there some other mechanism that we're not aware of? How is the immune system seeing it? You know, I mean, it's really, it's really, a, it's a really weird 
um, enzyme to create autoimmunity. I mean, people have autoantibodies to GAD65 is my understanding, and they don't go on to create the, or you know have type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's a good point, Paul. Perhaps you should invite Roberto Maloney to join us. Because I did invite him today, but he was busy and he sent his apologies. Ah, okay. Sorry to interrupt. Monica, you're absolutely right that uh, a lot of people never do present with symptoms uh, or progress in any particular way that I've got 65. Yeah, it's a, just a strange conundrum. I also just wanted to, one last thing I wanted to bring in is the fact that Matthias von Herreth, you know, he did some really in, an interesting paper where they um, ablated the vagal innervation of the pancreas and they were able to reverse uh, type 1 diabetes in the nod mouse. That sort of was a follow-on paper from one done by, you know, Philippe Blanco from France, along with Arun Trudar, who was a former Galvani um, scientist. And they also, you know, ablated the pancreatic innervation, like all of it, right? And so, and they also saw a reversal of type 1. So, and um, it's pretty, it's very interesting because Galvani is really digging into, along with set point, into the bioelectrics impact on um, inflammation in the autoimmune setting. I mean, in fact, set point has a indication for RA. So using these, you know, this technology. So it's, it's kind of interesting to really sort of think about the landscape that you're talking about, this alpha and beta communication in cut, you know, sort of in the bigger landscape of that these are, you know, paracrine cells, but also endocrine-like cells. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, neurocells. So it's just something to think about and start maybe having that as a, as a backdrop when you're, when you're exploring other parts of the physiology of the cells. I believe, if I could just jump in for a second, I believe that someone who may have some insight into the role of GAD65 in this is actually Franco Foley, hmm. because both because both Franco and Michele Solimena, when they were in Pietro de Camilli's lab, yeah. published a series of seminal papers beginning in I think around 1990 or 1991, focusing on the role of synaptic-like microvesicles, essentially synaptic vesicles. Um, you know, which, which are secreted alongside the dense core secretory granules of beta cells and are heavily GABAergic and their role in the evolution of diabetes. Yeah, well, we've had Michaela a couple times on uh, for Ask the Expert and we also just had him in the off the record the other day and we've talked about it, but there are some pieces that are still missing. There's some work that really needs to be sorted because most of their work was done in stiff person syndrome. Yes. But he, and now he is digging more into, he's really interested in sort of the mitochondrial interface in uh, beta cells. But that is a real, that's a really, yeah, it's a, it's a real puzzle. It's a really interesting set of um, experiments that need to be done. After working with pathologist type one for nearly 40 years, I'm still amazed of how little you understand. Anyway, we have still a long way to go. Well, it's exciting times. I mean, I think that, you know, if, I mean, I'll, I've said this before, but I think that if in the face of the pandemic, scientists could 
you know, have the urgency, create the collaboration, and ultimately come out with a, a vaccine. Why not? Why can't it be done for type one? Why can't we have the same sense of urgency and this and this robust collaboratory inter interaction and and deliver answers faster? Yeah, yeah, right. The problem is that autoimmune diseases are very complicated. This is what Okelem used to say that it's like you have somebody who is immunized against tetanus, and then you need to convince the immune system to forget about the tetanus toxin. So once the autoimmune starts, it's very complicated to make the immune system forget. Anyway, I think this is the challenge that we have. Yeah. I think there's two challenges. One is to make the immune system not perceive the beta cells as foreign. And second, once this starts to convince them to forget about beta cells. It's true. And perhaps a third one is to increase the beta cell resistance to the immune assault. So we have a lot of work to do. So I see the young generation here. Yeah. The task for the coming years. The, the young scientists do have a lot of um, really shiny new tools and bioinformatics, et cetera, to explore this space with. So I have a lot of hope that, you know, perhaps there's a Jennifer Duda out there, you know, that we can uh, invite into this circle of science and she or he will bring something uh, unexpected and relevant. This was such a great talk. Thank you all for um, joining. Um, Desio, amazing. Just your work is uh, just incredible. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really great to hear from all the, the excellent scientists in the room with just some excellent uh, thought-provoking commentary and, and sharing. So thanks again, and we look forward to the next one. Thank you very much. Have a nice Bye, day. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.